Welcome back once again to Food Toxicology. I'm Greg Muller, the instructor for the course. Well, in today's lecture, Toxicants Form During Food Processing, we'll talk about the processing of food in an introductory way. This is not a food chemistry or food processing course. We'll talk about processing and how it has the capacity to actually change the chemical and toxicological properties of some food components. This is an exploration of food chemistry and some of the processes associated with food chemistry and how there's a relationship between the various thermal and degradation processes associated with food that we are changing in food processing uh, associated with the development of chemicals that have the potential to become toxicants with significant dose. In our learning objectives here today, what we'd like to have you do is be able to discuss some of the general principles behind food processing and preparation. We're not going to explore this in detail, again, because of the nature of this particular course, but I think for all students, whether you come from the food science background or food toxicology, or you're just coming in from general science arenas or general interest arenas, you need to understand how we process foods and some of the major processes associated with food processing and even preparation of food. We'll have you uh, be able to list some of the major natural processes that modify food. Uh, we have only to allow uh, the bananas that we bought at the store sit on the shelf for a while before we start observing some of these natural processes at work. We'll try to have you list the major food processing approaches. Again, I don't expect you to understand these in detail, but just to know those types of energy inputs into food that might end up in developing some additional chemical reactions and the potential for development of food toxicants. We're going to have you as well be able to describe some of the physical chemistry background of toxicant formation in food processing. It's the same physical chemistry that you learned in freshman chemistry, and if you took PCHEM as well, in terms of some of the energy drivers, the energy bookkeeping associated with the development of products from reactants and the energy inputs required to make non-spontaneous reactions become spontaneous. We'll start then with an example, uh, an array of some of the major concerns in food toxicology. This is not going to be an exhaustive lecture, uh, but we will look at some of the sources and the pathways, the receptors and the controls associated with some of the most popular and most interesting uh, food processing toxicants. One of these is the N-nitrosamines that are formed from nitrites that are used in the curing of meat. We'd like to have you be able to explain the formation of PAHs or polycyclic aromatic hydrocarbons that are uh, uh, a combustion byproduct in cooking, especially broiling and barbecuing on grills or smoking uh, meats, for example. We'd like to have you also be able to describe the amino acid pyrolysates uh, in their formation in cooking. When we take amino acids and we heat them to high temperature, we allow certain types of pyrolysis reactions. Some of these can form mutagenic compounds of concern in terms of overall food and food quality. We'll try to have you explain the formation of the Maillard reaction products. We're not going to go into this. In fact, we'll only do it very lightly. Those that you have taken food chemistry courses know the Maillard reaction sequence quite well. Those of you who haven't uh, can look it up and talk and discuss about it uh, yourselves. We'll go through it in a very, very introductory way because 
these Maillard reaction products, which give us many of the flavors, uh, sometimes extremely desirable flavors uh, uh, in food and cooked food products, uh, but sometimes they also lead to undesirable products and some products that become reactants for further chemical intoxication associated with food processing processes. We'll describe uh, lysinoalanine cross-linkage, what happens when the lysine amino acid becomes cross-linked from an alkali or heat treatment of proteins. What does that imply in terms of the potential toxicity of the, this compound? We'll then finish up with a, a very involved and in-depth uh, analysis of something that many of you maybe have heard about uh, in recent history because uh, this uh, whole process and concern about uh, acrylamide in food, uh, in cooked foods, has developed uh, only really in the past five years or so. We'll try to have you explore the background and the risk assessment of acrylamide formation in foods uh, that are prepared at high temperatures, and we'll do this in a fairly complete uh, but yet introductory way. Well, as a background in terms of food processing and food preparation, you'll need to remember that Food processing and preparation is the conversion of raw vegetable, animal, or marine products into food for consumption. We do this primarily to preserve it, and this preservation is usually linked to reducing or eliminating some of the microbial contamination associated with food. Uh, it's also important in terms of expanding the accessibility of food. If you have a season, for instance, a season, a growing season for a vegetable, or a season in terms of uh, fish that are passing through your particular uh, area, or a meat harvesting season. If you are slaughtering a cow, it's a significant amount of food. Uh, if you want to preserve that for a longer period of time, you will need to have some approach to processing that food stuff uh, for longer term consumption. Now, food processing can result in final food products, and that's what we're mostly uh, concerned with as consumers but you should recognize that food processing can also result in some intermediate processes, some of which, uh, some intermediate products, some of these that you never ever see. They are ingredients uh, such as uh, extracted proteins or modified starches that are used in developing final food products for consumption. Now note that food processing and preparation will always involve some labor, uh, some energy, in some cases machinery, and an important part of food processing is the knowledge of what you need to do and how food chemicals behave with some of these processing approaches. Now, food processing can be commercial. In most modern societies, the majority of food processing uh, is uh, commercialized, uh, but it also can be done at the consumer level. Many of you may have canned vegetables, and so you know, for example, about blanching vegetables to retain the color and the quality of that particular food product. Now, preservation will allow longer-term availability of food, and so this does uh, uh, have economic and food availability dimensions because we have extended the shelf life of a particular food product. Food processing has a major role in establishing and maintaining microbial food safety. An example of this is pasteurization of milk products. It does have the ability of decreasing the toxicity of some foods, and recall our discussion about natural product toxicity and the detoxification of lectins in beans upon cooking. 
We can also use food processing approaches to convert an existing raw material into a new food product like the conversion of milk products into cheese or the conversion of uh, malt and uh, malted barley into beer. We can also use food processing to supplement or fortify our foods uh, such as fortified milk where we add protein from other milk products into a final milk product to increase its protein level. Generally, we do food processing preparation for a variety of reasons beyond shelf life and microbial uh, uh, sterilization. We do it quite often to increase the sensory uh, uh, attractiveness, uh, the color of the product, the smell of the product, the taste of the product. We do it to increase the diversity of our foods. Uh, if we had to eat the same thing day in, day out, uh, life would be boring. We have great joy in food. We do it as well to enhance and increase the nutrition of the food supply. And so these are some of the primary motivations behind food processing, whether it be at the home or consumer level or at the commercial food processing level. Now food processing, general background of what happens in food processing, you can break this down to the addition of thermal energy and this is typically done with elevated temperatures and this can result in cooking or sterilization. We can also remove thermal energy from the product again to increase shelf life and we reduce temperatures uh, for example in frozen foods. Uh, this is done for storage. We can remove water and we can also reduce moisture content uh, such as things as dried fruit or concentrates. Uh, we can package the materials for shelf stability, such as we do in canning and bottling processes. We can use mixtures of ingredients. Sometimes we'll take a dry uh, ingredient, like uh, a dried pea, and we will add water in a soup manufacturing process. Recognize that any time we add ingredients, we have the potential to add toxicants. So for example, food processing concerns are quite interested in the water quality of any water that they are adding to a beverage. For example, in a, uh, a soda manufacturing facility, the water that they are combining with the magic list of ingredients to produce your Coca-Cola is actually uh, some of the highest quality water uh, that can be achieved in an industrial setting. We also can process food with the addition of various modifiers and food additives. We reviewed many food additives in the course already and as well the bulk uh, food additives of things like salt and sugar and starch where we modify the overall properties of the end food product. All of these are some of the fundamental approaches to food processing and preparation. Now there are also a variety of natural processes that modify food and uh, I've given you on this particular slide an image of uh, the bananas uh, that can appear on your shelf. Uh, if you go buy new bananas and you put them on top of the, the old bananas, you'll see that there is a difference. There's a browning, a natural process that happens. Sometimes these processes uh, that occur in foods are due to spoilage or available microorganisms. Uh, wine uh, in ancient times was actually prepared from the naturally occurring yeasts that occur on grapes. Uh, there was no bioculturing uh, capacity in terms of uh, making wine. And even in the U.S. Uh, uh, prohibition days, uh, wine was regarded uh, in some newspaper columns as a gift from God because if you just harvest the grape uh, and leave it sit, it will in time naturally turn into wine. 
again because of the naturally occurring wine yeast. Remember that we have a powerful oxidant in atmospheric oxygen that will oxidize many biological materials. We as well also have uh, carbon dioxide in the atmosphere. Carbon dioxide in open liquids will attempt to buffer the pH of especially low pH or acidic uh, uh, solutions. We have, in terms of uh, the potential uh, initial stages of a food processing, if we harvest a material or if we open it up, uh, we have the ability to break cells uh, to release food enzymes. For example, the cassava root, the cassava tuber, has very limited uh, shelf life because of the enzyme release and the acceleration of oxidation processes. We also have to be concerned about natural processes that uh, indicate whether or not something will be stable post-harvest. All of us have experienced greening potatoes and perhaps sprouting potatoes. These are natural processes. These natural processes modify food chemicals. Mom always told you don't eat green potatoes because of the alkaloids uh, that can be produced in green potatoes. Uh, those alkaloids have a degree of mild toxicity. Uh, these are from natural processes modifying food. Again, we can also have uh, our food in equilibrium with the local environment. So there will be a thermal equilibrium with the ambient temperature, whether it be hot or cold outside, and we also have an equilibrium with available moisture. In a desert environment, lush fruits will become rapidly desiccated because of the ambient humidity in a desert environment. This is why dates that are on the date tree appear plump and juicy, but yet in your market they are somewhat desiccated uh, in terms of commercial date production. We also have to be very concerned uh, in terms of natural processes about the potential for just natural contamination. Natural water contaminants uh, that occur in many environmental waters that have nothing to do with synthetic chemicals or the hand of man, these are naturally occurring contaminants in natural water resources. We are always in a competition with insects and microbes. The vessels that we use have the potential to contaminate food products. And as well, natural products, uh, whether it be the greening of potatoes, potatoes being a living organism, uh, a contaminant level that increases because of a natural process, or because we're mixing, uh, in terms of our food processing activities, different products, uh, perhaps in some cases using contaminated grain that has been contaminated with weeds. Maybe some of those weeds have pyrrolizidine alkaloids. We end up with uh, essentially a toxic flour, which makes toxic bread. So these are some of the natural interactions in our food system that have the potential to modify food, but modify food to enhance its potential development of toxicants. Now there are many food processing approaches. This slide is essentially a course in food processing, understanding the physical and chemical and engineering approaches to food processing is a study and a discipline all into itself. I can go through this just to familiarize those students who aren't in food science, for example, of the variety of food processing approaches. We have thermal processing, and this is uh, typically a cooking process, a heating process, to allow for the development of flavors, the mixing of flavors. 
quite often in canning, especially with uh, fruits and vegetables, and sometimes for freezing, we will blanch, uh, which is a parboiling, a rapid boiling, typically with salted water. This helps preserve the color of frozen foods, uh, preserved foods. It helps deactivate some of the enzymes. We'll also do pasteurization, sometimes flash pasteurization, especially for dairy products. Some products will be sterilized. For example, uh, canned products will be heated to get a 12D sterilization of uh, botulinum uh, spores. We also will uh, process foods uh, with some level of just refrigerated storage. We will decrease the temperature, uh, for example, of uh, uh, commodities uh, that are perishable to change its degradation rates. We will use freezing and frozen food storage in many varieties. This is pretty straightforward. We will use liquid concentration. Uh, how do we do this? Uh, for example, fruit juices when you buy a concentrated orange juice. We will sometimes dehydrate uh, materials or bring them to a very low level of moisture, not only to uh, help in shipping, but sometimes it's just the way that we uh, transport or transfer certain types of commodities, such as spices. We'll sometimes use physical processes in food processing. Uh, this can just be a mechanical separation process, like the extraction of starches. Or we can use high-end mechanical uh, processes, like extrusion. Extrusion uh, allows, uh, in some cases, for a tremendous amount of mechanical energy through rolling or pinning or extrusion uh, to be developed as thermal energy. And this can be uh, actually a mechanism of cooking in some types of processes. We used an entire lecture here in this food toxicology course to talk about a post-harvest process of food irradiation. This is a food processing approach that is designed to inhibit microbial growth and to increase shelf life of many commodities. Now, the chemistry of processing toxicant formation follows the, the chemical thermodynamics and kinetics that we have long come to understand from freshman chemistry and some of the lectures in this course. This is chemistry. When we have non-spontaneous reactions, we can make them occur at higher temperatures. If you remember the Gibbs free energy change of a chemical reaction, delta G is equal to the heat of formation, the delta H, minus the temperature uh, times the uh, entropy, change in entropy between two states. Uh, notice that this is in direct proportionality. The delta G, which is the free energy change of a chemical reaction, is going to be more spontaneous as temperatures increase. Okay, So as we increase temperatures in a processing process, we will allow non-spontaneous reactions to occur. There is also a consideration for the importance of various enzymes, whether they be naturally occurring or added in a food process, or various catalysts that might uh, be involved in terms of food processing that will actually uh, allow certain types of chemical reactions to occur. Quite often, these have to do with surface chemical reactions. We need to recognize that there is a response of the kinetics of quality change to temperature. The increase in temperature will increase uh, the kinetics of quality change. That can be a desirable quality change or an undesirable quality change. Recognize <coughs> also that one of the ways we look at that relationship is through the Arrhenius equation.
Now, in terms of all of the chemicals that we uh, have in food processing, they can uh, arise as toxicants or protoxicants. Not yet toxic, but the process itself or our biotransformation or digestion processes can increase or intoxicate uh, the particular chemical. So they can be, these chemicals that are added or created during food processing can be anti-nutritive. And in a certain sense, you can have a toxicological result from limiting the uptake of essential nutrients if, in fact, some of the chemistry is binding up or inhibiting the absorption of what we need in terms of the development of the molecules of life or the development of the energy stores that we need for survival. They can also be direct toxicants or they can be protoxicants. All of these are important aspects of food processing toxicants. And the anti-nutritive chemicals will block or interfere or destroy some sort of level of nutrient availability. We'll see that with amino acid uptake. Some toxic chemicals can actually be formed during processing, and I want to make sure that just because they have been formed does not necessarily mean they will end up with a toxic end effect because we know about dose dependence. And so the chemicals that might be formed in all of these cooking or thermal processes that we'll talk about regard them in a dose-dependent context. They are also subject to biotransformation that will help to mitigate the toxicity. So there can be biotransformation, there can also be sequestration, and also elimination, uh, all of these happening via the methods that we have learned already in this particular course. And we can have chemicals that result from food processing uh, approaches that uh, can be regarded as protoxicants. These can be added as parent materials or created during some sort of food processing stage. And these can undergo toxication. Toxication is something that increases uh, in its overall potential for toxicity because of a biological think, uh, effect once consumed. In terms of food processing toxicants, this can be during the digestive process or between the phase one, phase two uh, biotransformation processes that we've discussed in the course thus far. Now some of the, the highlight uh, food processing and food preparation toxicants that uh, uh, you'll hear about are things like N-nitrosamine formation from nitrites. Nitrites are used in meat curing. And as I said, polycyclic aromatic hydrocarbons that are from combustion processes in the uh, broiling of meats. The development of amino acid pyrolysates. Uh, these uh, chemical compounds are combustion uh, or high temperature uh, byproducts. We'll talk about some of the mechanisms of chemical formation. We just introduced a little bit and we'll introduce a little bit more in the lecture here, the Maillard uh, reaction products, Maillard pathway, and developing some of the non-enzymatic browning processes associated with food processing and preparation. We introduced the potential for development of URPs or un unique radiolytic products, typically oxidized materials that will result from food irradiation processes and the uh, uh, process that the uh, chain of events that happens after we have the typically the oxidation of water and the cascade of these oxidants into some of the biological products that exist in food products. Uh, we've also introduced uh, the potential for lipid oxidation products. We did this during our oxidative stress lecture. In today's lecture, we're actually not going to go into food or radiation URPs 
or into lipid oxidation products, uh, basically because we've spoken of these in previous lectures. Uh, you can look these up on the uh, internet and uh, find out the diversity of some of the concerns associated with both of these potential toxicants, uh, range of toxicants produced in these particular processes. We will, however, develop a little bit of understanding in lysinoalanine cross-linkage, and this is where we're cross-linking an amino acid. Uh, this is happening during an alkali or heat treatment uh, of uh, proteins. This is for food processing for protein extraction and stabilization. And then we're going to finish up again with uh, an acrylamide formation in foods that are prepared at high temperatures. Uh, and this is uh, allowed or accelerated by the presence of certain types of sugars and amino acids. Now in our first uh, review here, we'll take a look at nitrosamine formation from nitrites. Many of you already know that nitrites uh, are used in curing meat and fish products. They've been used historically for probably a couple of hundred years, if in, as I recall. Uh, nitrite has uh, antimicrobial activity. Uh, it has various sensory attributes in terms of taste sensation. Uh, it does react with uh, myoglobin and hemoglobin uh, to form these red nitrosal compounds, uh, like on the picture here. It gives us this bright red color for meat. Uh, someone that has been to the meat uh, uh, meat uh, butcher shop or the meat section of your grocery store has maybe seen some uh, clearance meats that are starting to develop a gray or brown or sometimes greenish tinge. They're still high quality meat, but they're losing that highly oxidized uh, nitrosal red compound. They just don't appeal to us. Uh, and in fact, uh, without nitrite treatment, uh, most of our meat would be this kind of grayish brown color. Uh, due to the oxidation, the process oxidation of uh, meat from uh, atmospheric oxygen. What happens is that this nitrite uh, compound will react with secondary and tertiary amines, and these are plentiful and high-protein products, and these will form stable N-nitrosamines. Some of the high-temperature processing and protein degradation of these amines will actually increase uh, the rate of formation. Our concern about nitrosamines is that they are carcinogenic and mutagenic. This uh, reactive pathway, uh, chemical reaction, gives you uh, a sense of uh, how we get there in terms of the formation of nitrosamine. Uh, we start off with uh, uh, nitrite, uh, and this actually uh, moves on to the form in equilibrium uh, nitrous acid. Nitrous acid is, in fact, in equilibrium with the nitrosinium ion. This nitrosinium ion is the active reagent that can uh, actually react uh, with these secondary and tertiary amine groups for nitrosamine formation. So this is the generalized formula. I'll give you an example of the reaction of this process with the amino acid proline uh, forming nitrosopyrolidine. Uh, there's also a couple of other structures, dimethylnitrosamine and diethylnitrosamine down here as well, to give you an idea of some of the diversity of the chemical compound and products, these N-nitrosamines that are carcinogenic and mutagenic that are formed in this particular process. Now, the concern on nitrosamines is not that they themselves uh, are active. Uh, it's that their byproducts are reactive as alkylating agents. Alkylating agents are electrophiles uh, that will react with DNA, typically the nitrogen bases of DNA. Uh, they will alkylate these nitrogen bases, and we then have alkylated DNA and mutagenesis, potential for mutagenesis. 
this reaction sequence tells us that we can go from these nitrosamines down to the development of an alkyl carbonium ion. These alkyl carbonium ions are highly reactive uh, electrophiles. They are looking for um, uh, electrons. Uh, we have nucleophilic sites on DNA, such as guanidine, uh, that are uh, able to be alkylated uh, by this reaction. This is the mutagenic pathway of nitrosamines. Our next uh, analysis will be on PAHs, or polycyclic aromatic hydrocarbons. Again, these are formed in the high-temperature pyrolysis of carbohydrates and various grilling and smoking processes associated typically uh, with meats. There are, as well, endogenous uh, sources and environmental sources of uh, uh, PAHs. Uh, they're found in uh, oil products, for example. Uh, they're fine found from the combustion uh, resources in terms of things like coal and uh, gasoline combustion. Uh, and they are uh, ubiquitous in the environment as contaminants. Our food is grown in the environment, and so there is a potential for sequestration and food chain effects of PAHs. We do know that they are the products of combustion, and that certain pro cooking processes will increase the levels of PAHs in foods. Uh, people, uh, for a while, were getting warnings about overconsumption of barbecued meats. One of the concerns about these PAHs is that they are carcinogenic and mutagenic. And uh, what we find is that they have this characteristic polycyclic aromatic uh, look to them. The classic uh, compound is benzoapyrene up here in the left-hand corner of this slide, but I've also shown chrysine, uh, benzanthracine, benzofluoranthrene uh, as well to give you a diversity of some of these polycyclic aromatic hydrocarbons. We've actually reviewed uh, benzopyrene before in our Pathways of Carcinogenesis and Biotransformation lectures. Remember that uh, people have looked at this and studied the pathway to mutagenesis uh, as this active bay region in here in the 10-11 uh, zone. Uh, this active bay region, uh, if you use that as a point reference, you get a 7-8 epoxidation happening in uh, phase one biotransformation from cytochrome P450. Uh, then we process that uh, into a 7,8-diol. That 7,8-diol uh, will actually then encourage the formation of a second stage uh, epoxide from, again, cytochrome P450. This 7,8-diol epoxide is a very reactive oxidant. Uh, it can directly uh, react uh, with DNA. And again, this yields potential for mutagenesis. This brings open the whole process of what happens with the complex chemicals uh, that we've talked about and introduced in terms of uh, uh, toxicogenesis uh, in protein reactions. In many of the processes we use in food processing, we will be acting uh, directly or indirectly on proteins. Uh, these complex chemicals that contain amino acids and peptides uh, have the ability to produce, in some cases, desirable outcomes, but in some cases, undesirable outcomes, and as well, uh, potential for toxicity. In terms of some of the treatments we have, for example, uh, thermal treatments, we have the interaction of these uh, proteins with oxidizing lipids in kind of a, a reactive oxidation pathway. Reducing sugars can have direct uh, chemical reactivity with uh, some of the uh, amino acids and functional groups associated with proteins. 
Uh, there can be a direct reaction with polyphenols as well with proteins. Now, some of the outcome organoleptic changes in terms of the change of the lipids associated with that, we're not going to discuss that today. There can be some nutritional changes as you develop, as you change these proteins, you can change the uh, amino acids uh, such as uh, lysine, methionine, uh, cysteine, and tryptophan. Uh, these nutritional changes can have direct consequences uh, as t uh, potential for toxicity, but they can also change the availability of essential amino acids. It's the possible toxicity that we're going to be concerned about with most today. One of the ways that we can develop toxicity from proteins and amino acid reactions is through the series of Maillard reactions. Maillard reactions is a complex series of food chemistry reactions, uh, often uh, yielding desirable outcomes in terms of flavor modification during cooking processes. Typically, when we consider this in a simplified scheme, there are uh, the initial reactions of a reducing sugar and amino compound. Uh, we can produce various carbonyl intermediates in one pathway in the Maillard reactions. Uh, we can dehydrate these, create smaller and smaller fragments, short-chain carbonyls and dicarbonyls, uh, various furaldehydes, many of the taste elements that are associated with that. We can also go through a Stecker degradation. Strecker degradation, this is an amino acid and carbonyl uh, product. Um, the, uh, it produces a Strecker aldehyde and some sort of amino compound and CO2. It's these byproducts, uh, malonidin, uh, that uh, collection of products down here that uh, in this uh, very uh, complex uh, consortia of polymers, small chain molecules, small molecules, uh, highly colored uh, materials uh, that uh, are formed in this complex series of reactions that give us at least a bit of concern that the thing, same sorts of reactive pathways that give us flavors also can produce a series of chemicals that have uh, great concerns as mutagens and carcinogens. Some of these have to do with the production of the uh, nitrogen heterocyclics. In the Maillard reaction, again, we yield non-enzymatic browning. Uh, in many uh, foodstuffs like bread and meat, uh, this browning actually gives us a very desirable color. Uh, if you've ever microwaved meat, you, know, you don't get uh, the temperatures required for uh, a tremendous amount of Maillard reaction. You end up with boiled meat. Uh, the color, the flavor is not well developed. The browning of meat is an important part of the flavor, desirable flavors, desirable sensory attributes of meat and many other foodstuffs. Some of these desirable Flavors come from various pyridines and pyrazines and aldehyde compounds that are formed in the Maillard reaction. In some foodstuffs, such as milk and infant food, there can be nutritional losses uh, due to the removal uh, of, or availability of some of the amino acids in these products. Uh, there can be the development of undesirable colors and flavors as well from these reactive pathways. One of the reactive pathways that's undesirable is the formation of amino acid uh, pyrolysates. These uh, end products uh, form heterocyclic aromatic amines, or HCAs, uh, also known as meat mutagens. These are formed uh, typically during the broiling of meat or fish or other high-protein-rich foods. And so you can get these, for example, with some soy products. This is a result of a high temperature thermal degradation pathway. Uh, in some cases of tryptophan, tryptophan will yield uh, beta carbolines. 
and the other amino acids uh, that will yield uh, imidazoquinolins and imidazoquinoxalins, uh, these so-called IQ compounds that make up a wide variety of these meat mutagens. They also can be formed uh, from the reaction of the various Maillard products, these pyridines and pyrazines, and these aldehydes uh, uh, with uh, reacting with the amino acid uh, creatinine. Uh, these products uh, can be mutagenic. They're mutagenic because, again, they form DNA adducts. This uh, is a representative pathway. Uh, in this particular case, it's with free tryptophan, but you can construct a pathway with bound tryptophan as well. But here you can see the reaction of free tryptophan uh, with this carbonyl, uh, forming a, uh, a carbonyl amine. That carbonyl amine will actually undergo in cyclic uh, uh, closure, uh, the formation of a shift base, and finally uh, a removal of carbon dioxide to form a beta carboline. This is uh, an alkaloid type compound. It has toxic properties not only as a mutagen, but is a well known alkaloid in many plants, uh, alkaloid category, um, that has some capacity for neurotoxicity since the tryptophan is uh, one of the uh, major synthetic reactants associated with many neurotransmitters and neurochemicals, uh, beta-carbolines have the potential to interrupt that pathway. The process uh, for uh, the reactive pathway uh, of uh, imidazoquinolins and imidazoquinoxalins is illustrated in this particular slide. And here, the initial pathway of the Maillard reaction uh, we're using a hexose and an amino acid here. We're going through a Strecker degradation. We're forming this compound, and we've go and gone ahead and labeled uh, the various potential uh, chemicals, uh, uh, functional groups as uh, X, Y, or Z. Uh, this particular pyridine uh, will become a pyrazine if this Z is a nitrogen compound. And these X's and Y's can be various uh, methyl groups in various configurations of potential uh, amino acids uh, that would contribute to this process. Once you have this uh, Maillard reaction product and it's allowed to react with some other aldehydes that might be present from as other uh, Maillard products as well, um, there can be another level of reaction with uh, creatine. Um, creatine will react uh, and uh, reassemble to uh, creatinine. Creatinine uh, with these pyrazine or pyridines and these aldehydes will actually form these IQ compounds, whether it be IQX for the quinoxalins or the IQ for the imidazoquinolins. And what I've done here on this particular slide is give you a breakdown of, of how we've uh, done some simplified nomenclature of these various compounds. If we call the base compound of an imidazoquinolin or an imidazoquinoxalin as either an IQ or an IQX compound, the various substitutions at X and Y and Z, and then this R group off here, uh, just subterminal to the nitrogen, um, these combinations will give us several ways to look at these uh, without using the technical formula name for these fairly complicated compounds. So for example, instead of referring to this particular compound as 2-amino-3-methylimidazole-4,5-F-quinolin, we can refer to it as IQ. Uh, for short, and this one for MEIQX for the uh, quinoxalin. So this gives you an idea of the variety of chemical compounds because uh, there is potential for uh, functional group change on many positions around this, uh, this particular chemical, this particular chemical classification of meat mutagen. 
Now only uh, over about 20 meat mutagens have been identified. They go even beyond the list that we've done here. For example, I've given you the PHIP mutagen, which is a 2-amino-1-methyl-phenylimidazopyridine chemical. Uh, these in animal trials have been shown to be uh, carcinogenic uh, at high doses. There's some concern about our diet and uh, containing these particular in terms of relationship uh, to various sorts of uh, cancers in human. They are known to form DNA and protein adducts, and this is believed to be the pathway of uh, uh, carcinogenesis. The next category of uh, food processing toxicant we'll talk about is uh, lysinoalanine in foods. And we get this particular product uh, from alkali or heat treatment of proteins where we have a product that is a cross-linked lysine. Uh, this cross-linked lysine actually uh, has little influence on available lysine but it does end up reducing protein digestibility because it essentially is starting to polymerize uh, because we're cross-linking some of the functionality in proteins. We're polymerizing proteins, they become less digestible. Uh, this particular uh, chemical modification uh, does demonstrate a strong affinity for copper and some other metal ions and therefore there is the potential for enzyme inactivation. The main concern associated with this particular chemical compound uh, is not necessarily its uh, influence on available lysine or uh, protein digestibility, but the fact that it's been observed in rat trials to cause uh, renal uh, cytomegaly, uh, essentially uh, an end product uh, of, of great concern in terms of the production of this in a food process. Now, alkali treatment of food proteins uh, is used for uh, extraction of proteins uh, from, for example, fiber mismaterial uh, and uh, changing of the uh, functional properties and solubility of some of these proteins. Um, mild treatment, less than pH 9, you typically don't see this cross-linkage happening, but if pH is greater than 10, you do observe some of this damage. Some of that damage can be uh, in the destruction of amino acids if you follow this organization chart here, uh, and that can be um, a uh, limitation of lysine, uh, cysteine, and uh, threonine uh, from, uh, in terms of nutritional availability. It also can yield racemization, uh, which is almost complete and strong alkali, um, and since we only use L-amino acids, this can be problematic in terms of limiting absorption of essential amino acids. We can also find that uh, we can form this cross-linking uh, linked uh, product, uh, lysinoalanine, uh, and because we have observed uh, cytomegaly, in, which is in a large nucleus, uh, increased uh, DNA in these uh, uh, cells, these, uh, nephro, uh, these uh, kidney cells, that uh, there is in fact a, a relative risk associated with this, although we have not observed this in humans. Now in terms of the chemical process of how this happens, we start off with uh, uh, the amino acids, uh, cysteine and serine, an alkali treatment uh, forming uh, dehydroalanine. When we have that dehydroalanine, uh, it is reactive with lysine. It cross-links, and we now have this lysinoalanine uh, uh, cross-linkage uh, formed in a protein. We can also produce this uh, end product uh, without alkali. Um, if we have a, a serine phosphate residue, 
uh, like in uh, casine and uh, the heat treatment with uh, lysine will produce this same sort of cross-linkage as well. We have observed the levels in the production of uh, lysinoalanine in food products, and so they've been surveyed for their level in various processed foods. Going down this list in terms of uh, commercial food products, uh, you can see that uh, uh, alkali treated uh, uh, these intermediate compounds like soy protein isolate and uh, sodium uh, cyanate uh, whipping agent uh, can have significant levels, whipping agent uh, as much as 50,000 parts per million. Uh, 50,000 parts per million is about 5% by weight of this cross-linked lysinoalanine. Some home-cooked foods will have uh, trace levels in terms of uh, parts per million uh, on the order of 100 parts per million. Various commercial foods like corn chips and pretzels can have some uh, milk powder uh, because of the way it is processed uh, has very little uh, to zero. Um, some liquid infant formulas and some incan sterilized uh, materials can have significant quantities up to a thousand parts per million of this particular uh, end product. Therein lies the risk in terms of dose dependence of toxicity. Well, finally here today, we'll do it, uh, a substantial uh, review of uh, a food toxicant that has appeared uh, only in recent history. Uh, it actually uh, came to us uh, in the years 2000 and 2002 when some Swedish researchers identified acrylamid in some food uh, and some residues from human samples. Uh, this is uh, the uh, essentially story of a Sherlock Holmes uh, uh, investigation of some researchers that were working uh, with environmental and occupational exposures of acrylamid, uh, but then uh, found some data that suggested their control populations had significant uh, levels of acrylamide uh, in their uh, blood. The concern is that uh, acrylamide is a neurotoxin and a carcinogen. It's a fairly simple uh, chemical, as you can see in the bottom of this particular slide. Uh, in terms of its industrial uses, we know a fair amount about it and its potential risk in an occupational setting. Uh, it's used in many applications, cement binders. It's used in polymer and wastewater treatment. Uh, it's used in various uh, cosmetics. Uh, it's used if uh, you've uh, in a biotech laboratory um, using uh, gel separation. Uh, it's used in laboratory gels, page gels, uh, and it's used as polyacrylamides uh, in food packaging. So it's used as the uh, primary compound, but more often as the polymer uh, compound. Now, before we kind of uh, studied it as a food toxicant, uh, we studied it as an occupational uh, and environmental exposure toxicant. It's a well-known neurotoxicant. It's associated with peripheral neuropathy, or PN. It's also associated with the observation of tingling and numbness in the extremities, uh, and this can be associated with peripheral neuropathy. Loss of reflex activity, a chronic uh, CNS uh, dysfunction, uh, chronic exposure CNS dysfunction, and neuropathy uh, uh, pathology. That's, again, exposure uh, in a chronic uh, uh, arena. It's associated as well with reproductive toxicity. Uh, it's a known animal carcinogen. Uh, there can be some impact with the central nervous system and the endocrine organs in terms of the uh, target organs. Uh, the, uh, there is some uh, interesting comparative toxicity that mice uh, are uh, 10 times more affected uh, than rats. Um, it is classified as a probable human carcinogen by the Interagency uh, for Cancer Research uh, as of 1994. 
uh, biomarker of exposure is the presence of acrylamide adducts on the valine amino acid of hemoglobin. And so it does have uh, uh, biochemical activity. Now, the mechanism of action in terms of carcinogenesis uh, associated with acrylamide includes uh, an epoxide formation via cytochrome P450s, and so we oxidize this particular material uh, and form an epoxide uh, from the carbonyl group. Uh, there is a, a glycidamide uh, metabolite. We'll show you that here in a minute. Uh, this particular metabolite is reactive. Uh, it can bind to sulfidyl groups on critical enzymes and various other acids in DNA, and so we can have this initial stage mutagenesis. Um, it can be detoxified via glutathione S transferase in a phase two biotransformation. Uh, there are some physiological conditions of the exposed individual, such as protein deficiency, which can exacerbate uh, the uh, toxic effects, and this has been linked to uh, low glutathione levels. Uh, so malnutrition, oxidative stress, liver damage are all precipitating uh, conditions that will uh, forward a, a toxic end effect in acrylamide exposure. Now, the mechanism of action uh, as a neurotoxicant, uh, it's been observed that uh, acrylamide can cause the disruption of the kinesin proteins involved in tr signal transduction. Uh, this is, uh, has an overall effect of nerve cells uh, dying back, and this may be related to some of the reproductive toxicity and cancer observations as well. In terms of its pathway, it appears to cause an interference with membrane fusion process at the nerve terminus. Uh, I have a graphic up here uh, of the synaptic cleft. What we have here is these uh, synaptic vesicles that will contain the, the neurochemicals required for nerve impulse transmission. They have to undergo a uh, fusion process uh, at the uh, edge of the synaptic cleft where they actually uh, merge uh, with the uh, cell membrane and then release their chemicals. There apparently is uh, an interruption of that process. Uh, these vesicles cannot fuse, and then the signals cannot be conduct conducted, and the nerve dies. It cannot do what it's supposed to do in terms of transmitting nervous pulses. Now, the history in terms of food-related exposures to acrylamides came about uh, again in 2000 with a, a, an epidemiological study uh, and a contamination occupational exposure study of tunnel workers in Sweden that were using acrylamides uh, in their occupation. Their waterproofing sealants uh, associated with acrylamides uh, did develop some neurotoxicity in this cohort. Um, there was observed acrylamide and hemoglobin uh, adducts in the controls. Um, the problem was the controls should not have had acrylamide levels. And so with this observation of acrylamide at significant levels in the non-occupationally exposed population in this study, the researchers uh, started having to come up with a hypothesis of why acrylamide would be appearing in a background population. They hypothesized a food source, uh, maybe fried food uh, and perhaps uh, association with uh, burning tobacco. There was a rat feeding study that was conducted uh, with fried and non-fried foods, uh, and it was found in that animal study that the fried food group had higher uh, hemoglobin addict levels. Uh, this was published in 2000. This led to more detailed studies of what was actually appearing in the human food chain and food products associated with human consumption. 
This was of great concern to many because uh, in 2002 there was a press release by the scientists involved in this. Uh, there was a great deal of media activity associated with because there was a broad range of commercial foods uh, with significant levels of acrylamide. Acrylamide, again, a carcinogen, a neurotoxin, a reproductive toxin that was apparently being manufactured by food processing techniques uh, and typically high temperature uh, food processes. Uh, fried and baked products uh, seem to uh, demonstrate higher levels of uh, acrylamide, but not broiled. Uh, typically, foods in high in carbohydrate levels had the higher acrylamide uh, levels, and this was published in peer-reviewed literature in 2002. This uh, spawned a tremendous amount of international activity. Obviously, this is uh, a potent uh, carcinogen. Uh, a neurotoxicant, uh, reproductive toxicant that has uh, been gone undetected in the human food chain. The international activity was initially uh, through several meetings, uh, the FAO WHO expert consultation seminar that occurred in 2002 and 2003. Uh, GIFSAN, the Joint uh, Institute for Food Safety and Nutrition, uh, had a workshop in 2002. FDA had a public meeting and workshop in 2002-2003, and then additional meetings uh, since then. This is a continuing, very active area of investigation with hundreds of studies still pending, so this is an active area of research and risk assessment. In terms of initial determination by the U.S. Food and Drug Administration of acrylamide levels in food, this is in the parts per billion range, micrograms per kilogram. You can see as you uh, survey this list that some of the uh, materials that are cooked at higher temperatures, such as French fries, where we have as much as 1,300 uh, parts per billion or 1.3 part per million, have some of the highest levels, so potato chips, uh, French fries. But there's a wide range of products from breads, crackers, cookies, uh, popcorn, coffee, uh, nuts, uh, and uh, even peanut butter that have detectable levels of acrylamide. Now, you don't see acrylamide uh, in vegetables, interestingly enough. Uh, frozen vegetables, canned fruits and vegetables, even mashed potatoes, uh, uh, these concentrations are absent. And so it appears that there's a relationship between high temperature processing and acrylamide levels. Well, this led some researchers to try to figure out what the mechanism was in terms of acrylamide formation. As it turns out, it's derived from uh, asparagine, which is amino acids, uh, heated in the presence of sugar. Uh, there is uh, the uh, presence of these carbonyl uh, or glucose uh, facilitate uh, Maillard type uh, reaction. What we find in terms of this reaction is that high asparagine uh, sugar and temperature uh, processes will, in fact, yield high acrylamide levels in the final food product. The metabolism is uh, a transformation uh, to a uh, glycidamide in vivo. Again, this is to a phase two uh, transformation. Uh, there's an initial cytochrome uh, P450 uh, uh, oxidation of the acrylamide uh, to the glycidamide. Uh, the actual carcinogen is, in fact, this reactive epoxide. Uh, it's an active oxidant, the glycidamide chemical compound. Now, in terms of cooking and food processing processes, this graphic uh, gives us uh, a quantitative relationship between the production of acrylamides and processing uh, uh, approaches. 
Here what we have is uh, French fries, uh, and this is with increasing temperature, and the temperature is on the x-axis, acrylamide in uh, micrograms per kilogram or parts per billion on the y-axis. And the two different color uh, bars here are for uh, the different frying times. The lighter colored blue is a two and a half minute fry time. The darker blue is a three and a half minute fry time. And you can see as we increase temperature, in general, we increase acrylamide levels. But uh, as we increase the frying time, especially at these uh, high temperatures, we have uh, extreme, uh, perhaps even almost exponential increases uh, in the acrylamide production levels. Now, in terms of estimating the exposure so we can do some dose response and risk assessment, uh, we need to be able to model uh, the calculated acrylamide intake from uh, human food intake patterns. Uh, FAO WHO came up with a 0.3 to 0.8 micrograms per kilogram body weight per day uh, calculated intake. The U.S. Food and Drug Administration came up with a 0.37 microgram per kilogram body weight uh, per day uh, mean. Uh, the common average used in a lot of risk calculations is one microgram uh, per kilogram body weight per day. As it turns out, in terms of analysis, total diet analysis, no one particular food accounts for the majority of the mean population intake. Obviously, I can take a look at the lists of uh, chemicals of food uh, products that contain high levels of this particular chemical and suggest that there are some foods uh, that will contribute heavily in terms of uh, some people's diets where they uh, eat uh, too much, uh, for example, fried foods. As it turns out, foods with lower levels uh, and high consumptions uh, can contribute uh, on the opposite side significantly to the estimated intake. As it turns out from a risk assessment point of view, the levels that are consumed uh, in a diet analysis are about a thousand times lower than the levels causing neurotoxicity in human. This is typically from retrospective uh, epidemiological analysis and occupational exposure. Uh, the reference dose that's been established for acrylamide is 12 micrograms per kilogram body weight per day. There is a tenfold safety factor uh, in that uh, reference dose because of the reproductive studies that were observed in rats. There is no uh, adverse epidemiologic evidence, though, for a problem. This comes from follow-up analysis, although there are still studies out looking at this in a prospective and a retrospective multicenter study approach. Some of the studies that have been done, this is uh, mostly with environmental and occupational exposure before the observation of acrylamids in foods. In 1986, a paper published by Sobel uh, observed 371 workers uh, in acrylamide plants. Uh, in Collins and Al in 1989, there were 8,500 workers in an acrylamide plant. And in Marsh et al. in 1999, there was the same cohort as the Collins work, but 11 years later, um, from an epidemiological perspective, there were no associations with any kind of cancer among these uh, occupationally exposed uh, cohorts. There were some epidemiologic studies that were looked at in the uh, post-2000 era after the observation of uh, the uh, appearance of acrylamide in food. Uh, Mucci in 2003 looked at 1,500 Swedes, uh, reviewed their bladder, kidney, colon, and cancer, and 14 consumption of 14 different foods. 
In 2004, opened that up to 60,000 women colorectal cancer, and another publication in 2005 looked at about 49,000 women and the relationship of acrylamide in diet to breast cancer. Uh, the daily intake estimated was day, uh, per day was uh, 40 micrograms uh, per day per individual. Uh, there was, in fact, uh, from an epidemiological analysis in these studies, no relationship to any cancers observed. Um, Pellucci et al. in 2003 uh, found there was no relationship uh, in their epidemiological cohort between cancer and fried potatoes uh, over a 10-year uh, observation trial, retrospective study. Um, there were two studies that found a decrease in colon cancer uh, with uh, acrylamide levels, uh, so some confounding data there in terms of the risk hypothesis. Uh, and there are uh, dozens and hundreds, perhaps, uh, more studies that are currently in progress. Uh, so in a certain sense, the jury is still out, although the current indication is that uh, the risk concern uh, is not great, even though we do have the appearance of this compound uh, in human body fluids. Now, there are some recommended methods to minimize the appearance of acrylamides in food, and it's obvious that we don't want to overcook to, uh, these various high-carbohydrates foods. Uh, in fact, the biotech companies that work with some of these uh, vegetables, like potatoes, are looking at ways to uh, decrease asparagine levels uh, in these particular foods. Uh, because you want to avoid foods that have uh, cooking uh, at high temperature foods that have uh, the asparagine and sugar levels uh, of concern. Uh, you can hydrolyze this amino acid with acid or various uh, enzymes. You can acylate uh, it as well uh, with various processes uh, to prevent formation of this, the intermediates uh, with sugar. Uh, there are some research uh, analyses that are looking at the best ways to limit uh, curlamid formation in various processing approaches to several types of foods. The general recommendations uh, that come out of the agencies, the food safety agencies, international and national, uh, are such that uh, there is insufficient in evidence at this time to warrant a significant change in existing dietary recommendations. The FDA continues uh, with its emphasis on a balanced diet, uh, choosing a variety of foods uh, that are low in trans fat and saturated fat, and uh, which have been linked uh, to negative health effects, uh, rich in high fiber grains, fruits, and vegetables. The idea of being a healthy diet will counteract uh, all sorts of unhealthy exposure of potential toxicants, including acrylamides. FAO, WHO, World Health Organization uh, reinforces general advice on healthy eating. It advises that food should not be cooked excessively or for too long or too high a temperature, although on a risk uh, uh, from a microbial risk basis and pathogenesis, that food should be cooked thoroughly uh, to destroy foodborne pathogens. And so we have a risk versus risk situation here in terms of cooking versus overcooking. So there are also uh, some other aspects of acrylamide and what we've observed in dietary exposure uh, to acrylamides. Uh, we've learned that some bacteria can synthesize or degrade acrylamide, and some uh, aspects of uh, the human food chain, this can actually have an impact of decreased or increased exposure, and we're still looking at this and researching this. The highest levels of acrylamide are demonstrated from plant foods. Uh, we haven't really observed much from animal foods, and so uh, it is associated with these plant uh, uh, amino acids. Uh, we do find that the levels vary uh, between uh, the same foods that are cooked uh, at uh, different uh, times and temperatures. 
And so the food processing approaches have to be engineered to ensure a minimization of these uh, potentially toxic byproducts. Uh, there are other amino acids that can contribute to, to the formation of acrylamides, uh, but these are generally considered to be minor, at least at this level of our understanding. So this uh, background lecture gives you an approach to understanding the linkage between our activities in food processing and food preparation and how especially thermal processes can allow for Gibbs free energy uh, achievement of non-spontaneous reactions. Uh, some of those are, are uh, favorable reactions in terms of uh, the Maillard reaction series, but some of those uh, come at a cost, and the cost is the potential for production of these food processing toxicants. Uh, there is uh, obviously uh, risk out there in any food preparation technique, uh, uh, but uh, knowledge is powerful in terms of modifying your diet so that you don't overexpose by overeating any particular category now that you know some of the major concerns of food toxicants produced from food toxicology. With that, uh, um, thank you so much, and we'll catch you next time. See you.